This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Amos Oz called The King of Norway. One evening, as he regaled her with an affecting description of the starvation in Somalia, compassion for him so overwhelmed her that she suddenly took his hand and held it to her breast. His feet trembled and pulled it back quickly with a gesture that was almost violent. The story was chosen by Jonathan Safran Foer, whose fiction has been appearing in the magazine since 2001. His novels include Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and Everything is Illuminated. He joins me from a studio in Brooklyn. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. I know you've spent some time in Israel in the last few years. Have you ever met Amasaz? I have met him. In fact, he was a, a teacher of mine when I was at Princeton. He was um, oh. visiting for a semester, and um, I took a, a class on contemporary... No, no, it was actually the history of, of Hebrew literature. At the time, my parents told me, oh, you know, Amasaz is going to be appearing in this bookstore in Washington, D.C. Why don't you offer to drive him down? Wouldn't that be <laughs> nice? You'd have four hours in the car with him, and then you could, of course, come see us, which is always a great thing. So I said to him... At the risk of overreaching here, I know you're going to be in D.C. and I have a car and I drive. Would you like a lift? And he said, sure, that would be great. And the night before, I was quite nervous because he really was a kind of hero of mine. And I prepared all these questions and had in mind this sort of inspiring conversation that was going to end with a mentorship. And he got in the car and he said, would you mind, it would be helpful to me if I could close my eyes for a few minutes to think about the lecture I'm going to give tonight. I said, of course. And then I had to shake him awake when we got to D.C. So <laughs> it's the most time I ever spent with him. And then you didn't see him in Israel? I did. I've actually seen him a number of times. Um, one of the nice things about our friendship is that uh, it has taken a lot of different forms. You know, I was one of his fans, a reader of his for a long time before we ever met. And then I was a student of his in an academic setting. And then we developed something like a friendship. And now... Lo and behold, I'm a writer too. So I've had the, the great gift of meeting him with wearing all those various hats. Do you think that anything of his voice or his approach to writing rubbed off on you? Not really. One of the things that I really admire about his writing and this story in particular, it appeals to a kind of European literary tradition that engages with or explores very, very big ideas through very small scenes or settings, kind of taking the miniature as a um, stand-in or a symbol for the cosmic or existential, um, which is very different than American literature has traditionally been, which takes the domestic and blows it up. You know, so we have 700-page novels about a divorce, right. whereas um, European literature, and I think the, the tradition that Oz appeals to, he can write in as we have here, what, six six pages, something like that, something that is extremely resonant and profound and, and feels like it has more to do with humanity than the human characters uh, in the story. Well, The King of Norway, which came out in The New Yorker in 2011, ended up as the first story in Oz's collection Between Friends, which came out earlier this year, and in which all of the stories take place on the same kibbutz in Israel in the late 50s. How do you think this story sort of sets up the rest of the collection. Is it a good introduction? I think so. I think it thematically sets up the book really nicely. The challenges of being between an ending and a beginning, mm -hmm. you know, and how fraught that 
moment is and how some people are unable to make the transition from an ending to a beginning while others are. Right. Yeah, it's a story of a somewhat missed connection between two kibbutzniks. Mm. Do you think there's anything else that people should know about the story before they hear it? Well, like all great stories, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll talk more about the story later. Now here's Jonathan Safran Foer, reading The King of Norway by Amos Oz. On our kibbutz, kibbutz Yachat, there lived a man, Zvi Provisor, a short 55-year-old bachelor who was given to blinking. He loved to convey bad news, earthquakes, plane crashes, buildings collapsing on their occupants, fires and floods. He read the papers and listened to all the news broadcasts very early in the morning, so that at the entrance to the dining room he could astound us with the story of 250 coal miners hopelessly trapped in China, or 600 passengers drowned when a ferry capsized in a storm in the Caribbean. He also memorized obituaries. He knew before anyone else which famous people had died and would inform the entire kibbutz. One morning, he stopped me on the path by the clinic. Ever hear of a writer named Vislavsky? Yes, why? He died. Sorry to hear it. Writers died too. Another time he caught me when I was working a dining room shift. I saw in the obituaries that your grandfather died. Yes. And three years ago, your other grandfather died. Yes. So this one was the last. Zvi Provisor was the kibbutz gardener. He would go out at five every morning to reposition the sprinklers, till the soil in the flower beds, plant and prune and water, mow the lawns with a noisy mower, spray against aphids, and spread organic and chemical fertilizer. Attached to his belt was a small transistor radio that provided him with a constant stream of disastrous news. Did you hear? There's a huge massacre in Angola, or... The Minister of Religious Affairs died. They just announced it ten minutes ago. The other kibbutz members avoided him. In the dining room, they rarely joined him at his table. On summer evenings, he would sit alone on the green bench at the foot of the large lawn in front of the dining room and watch the children playing on the grass. The breeze billowed his shirt, drying his sweat. A hot summer moon shone red as it rose above the tall cypress trees. One evening... Zvi Provisor greeted a woman named Luna Blank, who was sitting alone on an adjacent bench, saying to her sadly, Did you hear? In Spain, an orphanage burned down and eighty orphans died of smoke inhalation. Luna, a forty-five-year-old widowed teacher, wiped the perspiration from her brow with a handkerchief and said, That's horrible. Zvi said, Only three survivors were rescued, and they're in critical condition. We all respected his dedication to his work. Never in the 22 years that he'd lived on the kibbutz had a single sick day been noted on his worksheet. Thanks to him, the kibbutz bloomed. Every unused strip of land was planted with seasonal flowers. Here and there, he'd put in rock gardens where he planted a variety of cacti. He had built wooden trellises for the grapevines. In front of the dining room, he'd installed a burbling fountain filled with goldfish and aquatic plants. He had a good aesthetic sense, and everyone appreciated it. But behind his back, we called him the Angel of Death and gossiped about him, saying that he didn't have or had never had an interest in women, or in men, for that matter. One young fellow, Roni Shinlin, did a marvelous imitation of Zvi that made us roar with laughter. 
In the afternoon, when all the kibbutz members sat on their porches and drank coffee or played with their children on the small lawns in front of their houses, Tzvi Provisor would go to the clubhouse to read the newspaper in the company of five or six solitary men like him, ardent readers and debaters, aging bachelors, widowers, or divorcees. From his corner, Ryuf Garoth, a small bald man with large bat-like ears, would mumble that retaliatory raids only accelerated the circle of violence, because revenge begets revenge and retaliation begets retaliation. The others would immediately attack him. What are you talking about? We can't let them get away with it. Restraint and appeasement only make the Arabs more brazen. Tzvi Provisor would blink and say, in the end, it'll turn into a war. It can only cause a terrible war. And Emmanuel Glosman, the stutterer, would say excitedly, War, very g- g- good, will win and t- t- take their l- l- land all the way to the j- j- Jordan. Ryuvka Roth would think out loud, Ben-Gurion is a great chess player. He always sees five moves ahead, except everything with him is always by force. On that subject, Zvi Provisor would prophesy sadly, If we lose, the Arabs will come and wipe us out. If we win, the Russians will come and blow us up. Emmanuel Glosman would plead, Enough, friends, quiet, let me read my papers in peace. And Zvi, after a few moments' silence, would say, Did you hear? It says here that the king of Norway has liver cancer, and the head of our regional council has cancer too. Whenever Roni Shinlin, the comedian, saw Zvi at the shoemakers or by the clothing storeroom, he would ask him mockingly, So, angel of death, what airplane crashed today? Tzvi, Provisor, and Luna Blank fell into a routine. They spoke every evening. He would sit on the right-hand edge of the left bench at the foot of the lawn, and she would sit near him, on the left-hand edge of the right bench. He would blink as he spoke to her, and she, wearing a pretty sleeveless sundress, would crumple her handkerchief between her fingers. Praising the kibbutz gardens, the fruits of his labors, she said that, thanks to him, they lived in a green meadow, in the shade of blossoming orchards, among blooming flower beds. She had a proclivity for using fancy words. She was a third-grade teacher and made excellent, delicate pencil drawings that hung on the walls of several of our small apartments. Her face was round and smiling and her eyelashes long, though her neck was a bit wrinkled, and she had very thin legs and almost no breasts. Her husband had been killed several years earlier while doing reserve duty on the Gaza border, and they'd had no children. The kibbutz members considered her an admirable figure, a woman who had overcome tragedy and poured her entire soul into her teaching. Tzvi talked to her about the different species of roses, and she nodded eagerly, as if agreeing with every word. Then he gave her a detailed description of the horrors of the locust epidemic that was devastating Sudan. Luna said, You are a very sensitive person. Tzvi blinked and said, Sudan doesn't have much greenery as it is. Luna said, why do you take all of the sorrow of the world on your shoulders? And Zvi replied, Closing your eyes to the cruelty of life is, in my opinion, both stupid and sinful. There's very little we can do about it, so we have to at least acknowledge it. One summer evening, Luna Blank invited Zvi to her place for coffee. He came in his after-work clothes, long khaki pants and a short-sleeved light blue shirt. His radio was attached to his belt, and at eight o'clock he excused himself to listen to the news. Hanging on the walls of Luna's room were several of her pencil drawings in simple frames, drawings of dreamy young girls and landscapes, rocky hills and olive trees. Beneath the window was a double bed with embroidered oriental pillows. 
A row of books on the white night table were arranged by height, from tall folios of paintings by Van Gogh, Cezanne, and Gauguin, to shorter volumes of the Casuto Bible and, finally, a series of novels published by the Hasifria Laam. In the middle of the room was a round coffee table with twin, plain armchairs beside it. The table was covered with an embroidered tablecloth and set with cups and plates for coffee and cookies. Tzvi Provisor said, Your room is very nice, and added, Clean, neat. Embarrassed, Luna Blank said, Thank you, I'm glad. But there was no gladness in her voice, only an awkward tension. Then they drank coffee and ate cookies and spoke of ornamental and fruit trees, of the disciplined problems at school these days when everything is permitted, of bird migration. Tzvi blinked and said, I read in the newspaper that in Hiroshima, ten years after the bomb, there are still no birds. Luna told him again, You take all of the sorrow of the world on your shoulders. She also said, The day before yesterday I saw a hoopoo on a low branch outside my window. And so they began to meet regularly in the early evening hours, on a bench in the garden in the shade of a dense bougainvillea, or over coffee in Luna's room. Zvi would come home from work at four, shower, comb his hair in front of the mirror, change into his iron khaki pants and light blue shirt, and go to join her. Sometimes he'd bring seedlings of annual flowers for her to plant in her small garden. Once, he brought her a volume of Yako Fishman's poems. She gave him poppy seed cookies in a bag and a pencil drawing of two cypress trees and a bench. But at eight or eight-thirty, they'd say goodnight and Zvi would return to his monastic room where the smell of bachelorhood hung heavily in the air. Roni Shinlin said in the dining room that the angel of death had spread his wings over the black widow. In the clubhouse in the afternoon, Ryufka Roth teased Svi affectionately. So the hand has found a glove, eh? But Svi and Luna were not upset by the gossip and the sarcasm. The connection between them seemed to grow stronger every day. He told her that in his free time he was translating a novel by the Polish writer Ivaskiewicz into Hebrew. The book was full of gentleness and suffering. Ivaskiewicz believed that the human condition was absurd but touching. Luna listened her head slightly tilted, her lips parted, as she poured hot coffee into his cup, as if the coffee were a kind of compensation for Ivaskievich's sorrow as well as for his own. She felt that their relationship was precious, and she appreciated the way it filled her days, which until then had been so flat and monotonous. One night, she dreamt that they were riding a horse together, her breasts pressed up against his back and her arms around his waist in a valley between high hills where a frothing river twisted and turned. She decided not to tell Tzvi about this dream, even though she had spoken to him in detail about others. Tzvi, for his part, told her that as a child in the Polish town of Yanov, he had dreamed of being a student, but instead he'd been drawn into the newly formed Chalutz youth movement and had given up his plans to study. Even so, he had never stopped learning. Carefully gathering the crumbs from the tablecloth, Luna said, you are a very shy young man. You're a bit shy now, too. Tzvi said, You don't really know me. Luna said, Tell me. I'm listening. And Tzvi said, Tonight I heard on the radio that a volcano erupted in Chile. Four villages were totally destroyed by the lava flow. Most of the people there didn't stand a chance. One evening, as he regaled her with an affecting description of the starvation in Somalia, compassion for him so overwhelmed her that she suddenly took his hand and held it to her breast. Tzvi trembled and pulled it back quickly with a gesture that was almost violent. 
His eyes blinked frantically. He'd never in his adult life intentionally touched another person, and he stiffened whenever he was touched. He loved the feel of loose earth and the softness of young stems, but the touch of other people, men or women, caused his entire body to contract as if he'd been burned. He always tried to avoid handshakes, pats on the back, or the accidental rubbing of elbows at the dining room table. A short time later, he stood up and left. He didn't go to see Luna the next day. He'd begun to feel that their relationship was heading toward a disastrous place he did not want to go to, a place that repulsed him. Luna, with her usual tact, guessed that she had somehow offended him. She decided to apologize, though she didn't know what for. Had she asked a question she shouldn't have asked? Or had she perhaps failed to grasp some important meaning concealed in his words? Two days later, when he wasn't in his room, she slipped a note under his door. I'm sorry if I upset you. Can we talk? Zvi responded with a note of his own. It'd be better if we didn't. It'd only end badly. Still, she waited for him after supper at the foot of the Margosa tree near the dining room door and said shyly, Tell me what I did. Nothing. So why are you avoiding me? Try to understand. It's pointless. They never met on purpose again, and if they happened to pass each other on a path or in the small supply room, they would exchange nods, hesitate for a moment, then go on their way. At lunch, Roni Shinlin told his tablemates that the angel of death had cut his honeymoon short, and from now on, they were all in danger again. And in fact, that afternoon, Zvi informed the bachelors in the clubhouse that a large bridge in Turkey had collapsed, and at the height of rush hour to boot. Two or three months later, we noticed that Luna Blank had stopped coming to the classical music group and had even been absent from several teachers' meetings. She dyed her hair a coppery red and began to wear bright lipstick. She occasionally skipped supper. On the Sukkot holiday, she stayed in the city for a few days and came back wearing a dress that we thought was a bit daring, with a long slit up the side. In early autumn, we saw her a few times sitting on the bench by the large lawn with the basketball coach, a man ten years younger than she was who came to the kibbutz twice a week. Roni Shinland said that she was probably learning to dribble at night. Two or three weeks later, she had dropped the basketball coach and was seen in the company of the commander of the kibbutz unit of the fighting pioneer youth, a man of 22. There was no way this could be ignored, and the education committee met discreetly to discuss the professional implications. Every evening, Tzvi Provisor would sit alone, utterly still, on the bench next to the decorative fountain that he had installed with his own hands and watched the children playing on the lawn. If you passed by and said good evening, he would return the greeting and tell you sadly about the floods in southeastern China. Late that fall, without warning and without the permission of the kibbutz secretariat, Luna Blank left for America to visit her sister, who had sent her a plane ticket. She was seen one morning at the bus stop wearing the daring dress and a bright-colored scarf, teetering in high heels and lugging a large suitcase. Already dressed for Hollywood, Roni Shinlin said, the Black Widow is fleeing the angel of death. The secretariat decided to suspend her membership in the kibbutz, pending further investigation. Meanwhile, Luna Blank's room remained locked and dark, even though there was a housing shortage and some members of the housing committee had their eye on it. Five or six ordinary houseplants, philodendrons, geraniums, cacti, had been left on the small porch, and Svi Provisor would occasionally go by to water and tend to them. Then came winter. Low clouds lay on top of the ornamental trees. Thick mud lined the fields and orchards, 
and the fruit pickers and field hands went to work in the factory. Gray rain fell endlessly. At night, the gutters shook noisily, and a cold wind seeped in through cracks in the shutters. Tzvi Provisor sat up every night, listening to the news broadcasts, and, in the breaks between them, he'd bend over his table in the light of his gooseneck lamp and translate into Hebrew a few lines of Ivaskievich's anguish-filled novel. The pencil drawing that Luna had given him of two cypress trees and a bench hung above his head. The trees looked melancholy and the bench was empty. At 10.30, he'd wrap something around himself and go out to the porch to look at the clouds and the deserted concrete paths, their wetness glistening in the yellow light of the streetlight. If there was a pause between downpours, he would take a brief nocturnal stroll to see how the plants on Luna's porch were doing. Falling leaves had already covered the steps, and Zvi thought that he could detect the light scent of soap or shampoo drifting from inside the locked room. He would wander along the empty paths for a while, rain dripping from the tree branches onto his uncovered head, then go back to his room and listen in darkness, his eyes open, to the final news reports of the day. Early one morning, when everything was still blanketed in wet, frozen darkness, he stopped a dairy worker, who was on his way to milk the cows, and informed him sadly, Did you hear? The king of Norway died last night. Cancer of the liver. That was Jonathan Safran Foer reading The King of Norway by Amos Oz, which was translated from the Hebrew by Sandra Silverstone. It appeared in The New Yorker in 2011 and is collected in Between Friends, which was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Jonathan, one of the interesting images here is that Luna, obviously this this whole process is a kind of sexual awakening for her. It doesn't happen with Zvi, but she ends up, you know, with the basketball coach or whoever else. And by the time she leaves, she's dyed her hair red and, and she's wearing red lipstick. She's sort of blossomed. There's a sense that Zvi has kind of tended her plant somehow. I'm not sure I agree. No? To me, something about it feels reckless and feels sad mm-hmm. about you know, her departure it, yeah it, it, not only that but the relationships as well like when she's with the 22 year old you know one can look at it and say hey good for her or one could look at it and say something sad is going on here or or at least this is not like a path to happiness mm-hmm. you know i think that what they have in common is a great desire to escape their mourning or their suffering. And they ultimately take what appear to be, you know, very different routes 
hers is kind of flamboyant and sexualized and seemingly brave. And his is to go deeper into himself. But I don't feel at all like she has a happy ending and he has a tragic one. So you don't think there's hope for her in America? I hope there's hope for her. <laughs> it seems that, you know, she's, she's, her husband has died and she's thrown herself into teaching and kind of put any, any life and vitality in herself aside. And that comes back through Zvi. But he offers her something that the 22-year-old can't, mm-hmm. you know? It's, it's that this is the question. Does she want love or does she want simply a release from grief? You know, does she want something deep or does she want relief from something else that's deep but hurting her? And I think what's nice and, and so intimate and, and that feels so fragile about those scenes when he goes to visit her is that they feel like they are the beginnings of love. Mm-hmm. And what she has after him, I doubt any reader would, would read that as the beginnings of love. Yeah. On the other hand, Svi is not capable of touching someone and maybe not capable of loving someone. What do you think is causing that? Well, he's not capable yet. Mm-hmm. They tried once. Clearly, there's something about her that is unlike anyone else for him. And he is willing to go to a place with her that he he seems not to have gotten to with anyone else. So he had a difficult time in that first encounter. I don't know. Did she give up on him awfully quickly? Well, he stops. He gives up on her. She put a note under his door. He returned the note. And that's pretty much it. And then she stops him outside the dining room. And he says, it's not going to work. But, you know, there's a response to that. I feel like what informs his, not only his sadness, but his, you know, very particular response to it, which is to just simply shrink back into the shell and leave as little of himself literally exposed as possible. That is a very deep grief. What is Fee's grief? Do we have any sense of that? We know this is set in the late 50s. We know he's been on the kibbutz for 22 years that he started in Poland. He obviously he he left before the war. He he's not personally a Holocaust survivor. He's probably lost family. Do we know where this all started for him? I just assume it was that he lost his family. You know, yeah. he was it talked about his involvement in the youth movement. Yeah. And that he was one of these figures who like so many left his family in Europe, in Eastern Europe and went to build a country. And just about everybody who didn't do that was killed. So I I just assumed, although it's never explicitly said in the story, that, you know, he lost everybody. Is it as simple as as that's the reason why he's he's always spouting these headlines about death and destruction? When I read the story, I don't think of him as somebody who is obsessed with death. I think of him as somebody who's obsessed with growth or with the possibility of growth Mm -hmm. and trying to come to terms with that, trying not to be naive, trying not to, you know, it's what he he says. He says, closing your eyes to the cruelty of life is sinful and stupid. There's very little we can do about it. So we have to at least acknowledge it. And, you know, a lot of Holocaust survivors in my experience either do their best not to acknowledge it as as a, a very understandable and necessary condition for moving on, or have a hard time acknowledging anything else, um, acknowledging any of the joys in life, any of the blessings. So, you know, to me, what is so interesting about him and so moving about him is witnessing that struggle, that wrestling match between acknowledgement of the cruelty of life, pairing that with a hopefulness. 
Do you think he is fully acknowledging? I mean, Luna accuses him of, of taking all the sorrow on his shoulders. It doesn't seem to me that he's ever really feeling the, the sorrow or the, the actuality behind the news stories he's announcing. It feels more to me like a kind of mantra somehow that by talking about these awful things elsewhere, he's sort of warding them off. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, we certainly never see any kind of emotional response from him of any kind in any situation, right? Yeah. I mean, we don't actually ever see him sad. We don't actually ever see him happy. Well, we just see him repulsed. Yeah. That's that's the strongest reaction he has. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think there's that one just sort of amazing moment where she says something and he says, well, you don't understand me. And she says, tell me. And he tells her that a volcano has exploded. Yeah. <laughs> it erupted in, in Chile and, and buried four villages. What, what do you make of that line? Is he saying, you know, I'm this volcano about to erupt? Is he saying, I can't answer your question? I think that's what he's saying. And, and maybe even this is why I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't open myself up because lava will, <laughs> will fill the space, basically. Nothing is more telling than that physical reaction he has when she takes his hand and puts it on her chest. As you said, it was, it was repulsion and just a kind of extreme fear. It's the fear that defines him. The first thing we hear about him is that he's prone to blinking. Do you read anything into that? I think it's this challenge of being open-eyed, you know, mm-hmm. of, lo- of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. There are many ways that one can close one's eyes to the world. This word acknowledge comes up again and again mm-hmm. to acknowledge the cruelty of life. And I guess that, as, as you were getting at, is the question, is when he is reciting all of these sort of catastrophic news stories, are his eyes open or closed then? Yeah. You know, is he acknowledging something or dismissing it? He's he's clearly dismissing it when she takes his, his hand to her breast and he recoils. You know, that is a closing of the eyes and, and the definitive moment for him in the story. So this blinking is, is, is sort of a sign that he's on this threshold, not one thing or the other. I think so. Yeah. And there's this, also this issue of him being a translator and of him translating this novel that's absurd but touching, which is, you know, could so easily apply to to their relationship and what we think of it. It's very interesting that he's sort of carrying things from one language to another. Right. Although he's also a reporter, mm-hmm. you know, of the news, which is like the, his, his, I think, external self or his persona is the reporter of bad news. And his internal self is a much more delicate interpreter of human sorrow. Mm-hmm. Like he's a very subtle person in the, in the way that all translators necessarily are but he's he's an especially subtle person alone and and it seems there's the possibility of him exposing that subtlety with her but then they have this difficult moment and, and are unable to recover from it why do you think the king of norway is the uh news story that oz chooses to highlight here by using it as the title M- maybe it feels like the most distant suffering mm-hmm. you know that ray carver story so much water so close to home mhm the sort of punchline of which is why do you have to go looking for trouble when we've already got so much? (laughs) And I think sometimes in literature, looking at the thing that's as far on the periphery as the eye can see creates an emotional effect or at least a reflection of what is happening at home in, in an extremely powerful way. And, you know, one person that nobody cares about when reading this story is the King of Norway. (laughs) Liver Um, cancer. Yes, right. It ends on like the most seemingly trivial note, but that's the point. Like yeah. th- th- those are the closed eyes rather than 
the open eyes mm-hmm. of, of our blinking hero. And it's the opposite of the subtlety that we think he might have access to in those moments with Luna. Mm-hmm. It's the retreat into distant suffering. Oz said that this story or this book as a whole is about the loneliness in a society where there's supposedly no place for loneliness. He tells a story about uh, someone telling him that, that he's as lonely as a finger. This <clears> idea being you're surrounded by these other fingers, but also cut off. Right. And Oz, you know, Oz lived on a kibbutz for 30 years, so he knows what he's talking about when he gets at this kind of loneliness, the sort of loneliness of collective living. And I wonder if, you know, maybe that's why we, why we have these moments of everyone else sort of spying on them or, or watching over them, this kind of claustrophobia as well as isolation. I think that's right. There's also the loneliness of being a survivor, you know, among survivors, having an experience that feels and must be utterly singular, but isn't utterly singular. There's the loneliness of being an Israeli, being a Jew surrounded by Jews. You know, it's such a different experience as an American Jew. And there are all these points of comparison, ways to, without effort, identify, feel your identity, mm-hmm. you know, you, an identity that is in opposition to others. One might think that it's far easier to have an identity that is in communion with others, but it's actually much easier to have it as something that pushes against or something that is um, oppositional. So there's a lot of different kinds of loneliness that this person, Zvi, would have been experiencing, but none more extreme than the opening and closing of the door to some kind of camaraderie you know, or right. communion. Yeah, he doesn't have any friends. He's always alone on that bench. But he likes to watch the kids. You know, there are all of these juxtapositions of the death-obsessed loner who is the sort of growth-obsessed hanger-on, you know, and that image that we're left with of him looking at the children or tending to the flowers, they are, I don't know if we would call them the exception that proved the rule or or just the effort that reveals his full loneliness. So did you ever live on a kibbutz? Never. It's it's a little uh a little much for someone like me. <laughs> Not cut out for collective living. <clears throat> or the manual labor. You never see your kids. It's not 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 a recipe for a happy Jonathan, I don't think. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan Safran Four's third novel will be published in 2015. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store, where you can also download more than 75 previous fiction podcasts. You can also subscribe to The New Yorker Out Loud and The Political Scene Podcast. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.